Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. Over the next month, uh, we're going to be bringing you podcasts every match day of the World Cup after 10 o'clock UK time every night in our studio that would rival ITV's grand set. In fact, I think their designers might have worked with us here previously. Anyhow, with me today, the Deputy Football Correspondent for The Times, Matt Hughes. Hello. Hello. In Moscow, having just watched Russia romp to a 5-0 victory over Saudi Arabia in the opening game of this tournament, we'll be hearing from Oliver Kay. And we'll be discussing the story dominating the headlines off the field. Spain sacking their manager. Gab Marcotti joins us later. But first, let's get an update from the England camp in Rapino with Henry Winter. Henry, how's it all going out in Russia? It's good, Natalie. They've uh, they've cleared the uh, dead seal off the beach, which has made the uh, the early morning run slightly easier. I don't have any sort of strange hurdling to do. Uh, no, it's lovely. The sun's out. The the players have been very helpful, very open, which is part of Gareth Southgate's or Glasnost uh, regime with the press, which is very welcome. And they have to deliver on the pitch, but uh, the, the the culture of suspicion and paranoia has has lifted for now. For now, indeed. We'll talk a bit more about the the openness of the squad a little bit later, but it's not too long until England's campaign gets underway in Volgograd. And based on the training sessions you've been watching for us, we're 90% confident of what that team will be against Tunisia on Monday? Yeah, I mean, obviously we get booted out of training, but (laughs) the suggestion is is that uh, when England put the bibs on, as we call it, it looks like Pickford obviously being number one, he will be in goal with uh, Trippier and Young as wing-backs, uh, back three of Walker, Stones and Maguire, Henderson holding with Ali and Jesse Lingard pushing on towards Sterling and Kane. An attacking formation, Matt, as, as we expected. Yeah, I think the key, really, in any World Cup is to get off to a good start. And Southgate clearly thinks he doesn't need um, two pivot players, as he calls them, in Henderson and Dyer in the same team. Um, against against Tunisia and Panama the first two games so I think it makes sense to use Ali 
and Lingard as runners, really, in that midfield behind Sterling and Kane. I guess my only quibble would be probably with the back, 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 back five, Maguire over Cahill. I'm, I'm certain that's what he'll do. Gareth Southgate loves Harry Maguire, but I worry about his lack of mobility and the ease with which opponents can turn him. And I also thought in the two warm-up games, if it, if it was a head-to-head, Danny Rose is better than Ashley Young, but, you know, we're kind of uh, splitting hairs, really. That probably is England's strongest team for, for the games that are coming up. Yeah, I think that the Harry Maguire decision is the one that is more surprising of any of them. Uh, but you mentioned that Southgate rates Maguire. Why do you think he would have opted for him then over Cahill? He thinks he's better on the ball, is the bottom line. And he wants, obviously, the back, wants England to play from the back. And he's built his defence around John Stones all season, despite the fact that he's not played that much for Man City. And he basically thinks Harry Maguire is a better footballer than Gary Cahill, which he probably is, but is he a better defender? It'd be interesting to see if England progress through the tournament and get up against better opposition, whether Gareth is willing to sort of alter his principles a bit and maybe go with a more um, robust defender. Hmm. Uh, Jordan Henderson, we expect to be chosen over Eric Dyer. Two important players with parts to play, no doubt, in this World Cup. But Henry, it's a case of choosing the system over the players this time. Uh, yes, to an extent. I mean, he's. If you look at uh, Gareth Southgate's career with England, I think he quite liked playing that system or version of that system under Glenn Hoddle uh, when he was in England international. I agree with Matt on uh, Rose and Young. I think England are a bit top-heavy on right-footed players. And with Young, perhaps not in the first two games, when he comes up against the better quality uh, right-back, he will automatically show him out wide onto his, his weaker left. Young always wants to check inside. So I, I do think that is a slight issue. I really like Rose. I think he's a terrific player as well as having that left foot. I think he's just a little bit rusty and he's probably just a few minutes behind in terms of uh, what he can deliver. In terms of the, the centre of it, Henderson has had such a good season. He will be, he'll be leading. He'll be a one-man pressing machine, hunting and destroying in, in midfield, looking for that ball. Eric, I'm a huge Eric Dyer fan. I mean, he has been um, sporting some uh, rather fetching um, strapping on his left thigh in the last couple of training sessions. But I imagine, as, as Matt was saying, there'll be a double pivot against Belgium when you need more sort of security in midfield and he'll partner Henderson. Then, you know what happens, Natalie, with, with, with teams in tournaments? They always evolve. So Maguire may start and Cahill may come in. I think Cahill, as, as Matt says, has been playing well, but I, I'm a big Maguire fan. My only concern is concentration. He can slightly get caught out of position, and um, you know he does occasionally have a mistake in him. Southgate clearly feels that what he can bring by stepping into midfield, and England is so short of long-range passes, and Maguire can sort of spin a 50-yard ball from left to right. So uh, I think he's he's in there for that as much as his defending. What M- Maguire only has five caps for England. Does international experience count for anything? Does it matter at a World Cup, Matt? I think it does, yeah. Um, but the experience of losing isn't great, isn't much use, <laughs> yeah. which is what I think Southgate concluded when he was putting his squad together and he was very, very quick to jettison the sort of Rooney, Hart, Wilshire brigade. Um, so it's what we're seeing is a team that's growing and evolving together and Southgate has kind of put, he's put form and um, time spent in the squad above experience really, which is... A slight gamble, and we'll, we'll see see if it pays off. Uh, the team evolving, and the team bowling the media over Henry. Uh, well, tempting bowling, yeah, yeah, definitely. It was uh, it was great when they turned up. This is a slightly surreal place. The um, the FA have booked uh, 
that the, as the media center. It's upstairs in a local hotel called the, the, the Cromwell. And um, it's like going into an amusement arcade, which makes a change from the usual England circus. And there's a dartboard there. There's tempting bowling. I had a go early and got absolutely, absolutely smashed by a slightly slow-moving man from the uh, Express, which was very humiliating. And oh, he was so dear. far ahead. He, he was so far ahead, he actually declared and went off early for lunch and just sort of left me there. Henry, sort of you've let us down. Miles behind. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no lucky strike for me. <laughs> uh, but, but tell us a bit more then about this team that, that are, seem to be enjoying each other's company. They are. I mean, you know, obviously they're for the first time in, in my experience of what, 25 odd years of doing this, very odd in some cases, they seem to be enjoying the media. They come out, you know, they were doing the bowling, there was a bit of darts, there was uh, a lot of chat. And what's been very noticeable is that when they've done their media duties, they actually hang around for about five, ten minutes for a little sort of chat afterwards. It's actually still quite civilized, which is a word I've never used with, uh, with, with England. The bonding actually between the players, I mean, that is something that's partly done through technology. They're all a couple of WhatsApp groups they've got. Uh, they're playing Fortnite. They've, you know, obviously, they're going to the physios and talking there and having their massages and watching the games. They watch the game tonight. But also on a very sort of serious, somber note, I was really impressed with the way they handled the, the Grenfell tribute today. And fair play to Raheem Sterling, who's obviously been heavily involved in the Grenfell campaign and fundraising for it, along with Ryan Bertrand, another England player who's, who didn't make the squad. And they did it. They did it really well today. They came out before training. It was all very quiet. They were soberly dressed in sort of black training tops, and um, you know, minute silence, applause, and then obviously they got on with uh, with, with training. But you know, there's a again, it's civilized. It's it's the way it should be, but it's the way it hasn't been recently. Mm, it seems like the culture is improving uh, in the England camp. Matt, what do you make of the players, if you like, cozying up to the media? I think um, they've responded to the way Gareth Southgate wants to run things, really. I mean, what's interesting, what I picked up at St George's Park before they left, was previous years, the people who were doing media were coming on their own and they couldn't wait to leave, as Henry had said. But this year, before this tournament, they kind of, the FA have tried to do it all together and all the players are basically taking responsibility. In previous regimes, there were certain players who just would not engage with the media at all. You know, Ashley Cole for years and years and then at various other points, John Terry, even Wayne Rooney before he was captain, just wouldn't talk and it was always basically, you know, nice Gary Cahill, nice James Milner was trotted out, um, which, I, you know, as well as being frustrating as a journalist, it didn't reflect well on the group because they weren't, as a team, taking their responsibilities seriously and collectively and, and, and this group are which you know augurs, augurs well obviously you know they lose on Monday things could change so um, we, 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 we will see mm. How can one man and I'm obviously referring to Gareth Southgate change something so much in such a short space of time oh, The manager of any club any organisation sets the tone um, and I think part of the reason is Gareth Southgate he's worked for the FA for a, for a very long time on and off since 2011 really so he's got a lot of goodwill inside the organisation and just the way he approaches things um, he sort of appears to be quite consensual but ultimately he tends to get his own way he's sort of got a, a quiet authority which um, you know it's, it's, it's hard to hard to have in football um, and I think it just reflects on on the standing he has and let's just hope it survives the next month <laughs> uh, Looking ahead then to Monday night's game Henry uh, Harry Kane has said that England need to be aggressive 
and brave. Is that easier said than done? I mean, one of the reasons why it is pretty happy squad is it's a very young squad. You know, they're no, not too, well, I don't think there's anyone, that, any sort of cynical players who's had, who's played 20, 30 games and he's seen the sort of, you know, the dark side of playing for England when the headlines are really bad. I mean, I think there are, what, four of them still left over from Iceland who are likely to start on Monday. But, you know, they're still sort of young and exuberant and positive and optimistic. So, uh, you know, I think that's very positive going into, uh, going into Monday. The Game. World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. You can hear live commentary of all Friday's games on TalkSport, including Egypt taking on Uruguay at one o'clock, Morocco versus Iran at three o'clock, and the huge clash between Spain and Portugal live from seven o'clock on TalkSport. The World Cup as a tournament is up and running and it was the perfect start for the host nation Russia as they thumped Saudi Arabia 5-0 in Moscow. Oliver Kay was in the Luzhniki Stadium. Uh, Oliver, good to speak to you this evening. Good to speak to you. Let's ask simply, were Russia that good or were Saudi Arabia simply that bad? We've probably seen better performances than, than Russia's, although it, was, although it was very good and very surprised, you know, surprised a lot of people. But I don't know how many worse performances we've seen at um, at a World Cup than um, than Saudi Arabia's um, tonight. It was it was dreadful. It was uh, I remember as a um, as a seven year old boy, there was El Salvador lost ten one to Hungary in a game at the um, 1982 World Cup, and that was that was. Um, Reckoned to be spectacularly inept, and I'd say that that was um, this tonight from Saudi Arabia was was almost on that on that scale. And it, was, it was strange because they had quite a lot of possession and, and, and looked tidy enough in possession, but it was just you know they, they just collapsed every time they were um, attacked, and it was um, I think Russia the Russian fans and players probably just couldn't believe their luck. Mm, defensively, they certainly seem to be all over the place. Uh, but it was star performance from Alexander Golovin, two assists and the final goal as well, that free kick uh, in the 90th minute. Also, Denis Sheryshev, uh, he scored a brace. His second in particular was a right cracker, wasn't it? There, there is known to be talent in, 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 this, um, in this squad. Um, from those two in particular, and from Jagorev, who, um, uh, who, who went off injured early on, sadly for him. But, you know... It, it has been felt in Russia like you know this. There just wasn't a team emerging in the lead in the build-up to this tournament. And expectations seem to have been very, very low. Yeah, that sort of leads me nicely on to the fact that the the Times out or the Moscow Times, uh, their headlines were doomed to fail, no, destined. No, no relation whatsoever. We need to make that point, obviously. Uh, but they said doomed to fail, destined for defeat. They were saying that this was the worst generation in Russian football history. Too early for them to have been so critical, do you think? Well, I, I, I know the, um, the, the, I mean, the, the results have been, have been awful in the, in, in the, in the build-up. They you know, did not, um, I think they hadn't won any of their past seven warm-up matches. They, they, they played Turkey and Greece, was it? Well, no, Tur- Turkey and Austria in the final two warm-up matches probably in, intended or expected to build up a comp- bit of confidence in those games and, and, and didn't win either of those either. I think that had they not won tonight, it was going to be their, their, their worst run since 1912. Um, they, they were, um, you know, I think the doubts that people have had about them were, were, were entirely reasonable doubts. And even, you know, someone like Andrei Konchelskis had, had 
good interview this week and said this is the worst Russian team I've, I've ever seen. And, and to be honest, they haven't been, you know, apart from getting to the um, um, semi-finals of the Euro 2008, they, 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 they just had, they haven't been a good team for for for, for a while, really. They've, they've not got to a, they've, they've they've not got beyond the group stage of any of the last six World Cups. But um, this this squad, obviously, expectations are, are big, usually on a home nation. But I, I think everybody had been sort of revising and lowering ex- those expectations frantically as, as the tournament approached. Yet suddenly, now after a result like that and a performance like that and all those. Spectacular goals. I mean, the, the, the mood inside the stadium was 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 fantastic, and 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 I think they'll be um, they'll probably have some real momentum to take them into the um, the, the much harder games against um, Uruguay and Egypt as they, as they look to qualify from Group A. It makes a real difference to the tournament. I know it's a cliche, but in my experience, it it is true. I mean, the best tournament. Most enjoyable tournament I've been to was Germany 2006, um, when Germany obviously did very well, got to the semi-finals unexpectedly, and had a kind of deeper meaning with sort of you know the first time that Germany as a nation had felt kind of really united um, in the whatever 16 years it was then since unification, um, and South Africa 2010. They they didn't do so well, wasn't the same. And Brazil obviously were humiliated in the semi-finals. Um, four years ago, but obviously before they had done well, and <laughs> I remember an extraordinary evening in São Paulo um, before England played Uruguay the night before Brazil had won a game. I can't remember who it was against. We were sort of watching, and you've never seen a party like it. It was extraordinary. There's just sort of like a mass uh, kind of Roman orgy going on, basically. There are people having <laughs> people having sex in the streets. <laughs> I was just thinking it's a samba, but you've gone down yeah. a different route. Ollie, Ollie was probably still filing his preview. Legendary <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Le- late. We went out for a drink. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, the atmosphere can, can really catch fire. And I'm interested, Ollie, what it's like in Moscow. Mm. Um, you know, in France, two years ago, Paris, you wouldn't really know there was a tournament on because, you know, the Brazilians are a little bit snooty. The Muscovites kind of really got into it. Um, I think they. Um, I think they're being. You know, well, I, I don't think it, it, it's a city that you would have expected to, to necessarily embrace um, a World Cup in, in, in quite the way that Rio did. But it's it's a it's a city that's got you know four very good teams. It's there is football passion everywhere. But I, I remember being here in the the Champions League final. What was that? Ten years? No, eight years ago? Uh, no, ten years ago. Um, and you, you would hardly have known that was on at the time. Yet this, one of the, one of the reasons why you why you would have no doubt that there was a World Cup on, um, as well as the um, mood tonight after this win, is, is just the sheer number of fans who've who've travelled um, from South America, in particular from Latin America, from Mexico, from Colombia, from Brazil, Argentina, Costa Rica, and particularly from Peru. It's staggering. How many of the travelling fans who are here um, are, are from Latin America rather than from Europe? Um, and it's um, you know they, they they bring a lot of colour, they bring a lot of noise, um, but also you know, Iranian fans, Egyptian fans, Saudi Arabian fans. It seems like um, the whole you know the whole world world is converging on um, Moscow, but but perhaps not um, Europe in the same numbers, which is. Interesting. I don't know whether that's about you know people in Europe being 
scared scared off by the um, the expense or the um, which I can understand, or, or, or by the you know scare stories and some of the media co- coverage, or, or or whether it's just I don't know, a, bit of, a bit less less raw enthusiasm for the for the national team. But 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 the, all the noise is coming from um, as I said, the, you know the Latin Americans in particular. It's 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 amazing, and, and it'll be great when 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 they get started because it, it's um, I mean. Most of them are still several days away from their first game, um, which is, um, in many cases, happening hundreds of miles from here. So, um, mm. goodness knows what it'll be like um, around the stadiums in those cities on those match days. Well, you mind out for those uh, Roman orgies, as Matt uh, told us uh, about. But, but speaking, <laughs> I generally do. <laughs> but speaking of of the mood, um, Alison Rudd, she's uh, out in Kazan, and she's written uh, tomorrow to say that the celebrations have been muted. There, she says uh, that the Australians have been the, have been the ones there partying the most of, of anyone in Kazan. And I wonder, Russia, as Russia is, and not as the Soviet Union, they've never reached the knockout stage of a World Cup mat. And, and despite the victory, they might might still find it hard to qualify from their group with Uruguay and Egypt in there. Yeah, well, it's going to be um, a fascinating game against. Egypt, isn't it? You would, you would, you would think. Um, extent of Mo Salah's fitness will be instrumental. You would expect Uruguay to get through the group, and you would expect all of them to beat Saudi Arabia comfortably. Obviously, the, the five goals, their goal difference could ultimately play a part. So, um, I think if they can get anything from from the Egypt game, they'll they'll be in a good place. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The Game. World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. We'll be giving you a Times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast as provided by one of the greats in the world of stats, our very own Bill Edgar. Our question today, who's the last England-born player to win the World Cup? We'll give you the answer and a new question on Friday's podcast. There is a huge game on Friday night with Spain and Portugal taking on each other in Group B. The game, of course, been largely overshadowed by the news of the sacking of the Spain manager, Julian Lopetegui. Uh, Gab Marcotti joins us now. Gab, uh, I don't know how you can make any sense of it, but incredible scenes that came out of the Spanish camp this week. Yeah, it was was remarkable. And I think... The, the remarkable bit, obviously, Julian Lopetegui had done, done very well and made Spain one of the favourites for the World Cup. Um, what's remarkable isn't so much, I think, that Real Madrid uh, decided to turn to him. And it really was kind of a, a last-minute thing, obviously, after the sacking of Zinedine Zidane and after sort of, uh, you know, asking after Pochettino and Klopp and Allegri and getting a bunch of no's. Um, but it's the fact that the Spanish FA decided, you know what, you're going to go and, uh, and and announce this without basically even telling us, you know, bar a few minutes earlier, um, that's fine. We're just going to sack you on the spot. And that's uh, that's pretty much what they did with, with Lopetegui, with the uh, head of the Spanish FA who was due to vote in the FIFA Congress on, on Wednesday, flying out to the training camp and uh, <laughs> basically telling him, be gone, good riddance, you're not needed. Go enjoy Madrid. I, I mean, it's quite shocking, isn't it, Matt? What did you make of it all? It's just staggering, really. Um, and I actually respect the Spanish Federation for um, acting the way way they did. I mean, his negotiations with Real Madrid must have been going on for days, if not weeks. Um, so not even to to give his employers only five minutes' notice before Real Madrid basically told the world. It's just extraordinary. Um, I was trying to contact the Wolves yesterday, actually. He reminded me that Lopetegui had done a similar thing with them. Apparently, he basically agreed to join Wolves as manager before he got the Spanish job when he was with the under-21s and then basically got a better off from Spain and kind of bumped them off. Oh. And then um, that's when they appointed Nuno and obviously it's gone very well for them. But um, So it's not... <laughs> I don't know the man, but it doesn't seem out of character. <laughs> well, well, Gab, you described it on Twitter as devious and unprincipled uh, from Lopetegui, didn't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, admittedly, early on, we only heard, you know, the Spanish FA side of the story. And, and basically, Lopetegui came out this evening, Thursday evening, uh, and said, uh, look, um, Spanish FA, you know, Rubiales was the first guy I told. He's the head of the Spanish FA, and and this all of this happened so quickly and so on. And I, I, you can't escape the fact that that he didn't tell them. If he had come out and he said, Look, "I have this offer from Real Madrid," you know, 
I know it's going to be potentially problematic because obviously we've got Real Madrid players and Barcelona players in the squad, and but I promise I'll give 100%. The squad's united, blah, blah, blah. You know, can, can we make a plan, figure out how we're going to handle this? It might have been okay, but that didn't happen. And, and there's an element, another element there. I mean, Matt mentioned Wolves, of course. You know, the guy who made this deal happen was, was George Mendes, who... Uh, surprise, sorry, surprise. Careful what I say about, <laughs> yeah, I got to be careful what I say about him and Wolves. But um, the interesting thing was uh, today, the whole question of who knew what and when came up. And uh, uh, today at the press conference, it's Sergio Ramos, who, of course, is a Spain captain. And um, there's been, you know, accusations and everything in Madrid. When, when we went to the Spanish media, we have to remember how polarized everything is, right, between Barcelona and Madrid. But there had been suggestions and accusations that all of this was orchestrated by Sergio Ramos, who, you know, seeing that, you know, they had the shock departure of Zidane, they couldn't get a manager, that, that he'd almost kind of uh, acted um, as a, kind of the go-between uh, before Mendes got involved. I have no clue if this is true, um, but I do know that, you know, when he was asked directly, like, did you know that the negotiation was going on? You know, he kind of skirted it and he said, well, look, you know, it's it's normal in the team that, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm the captain of the Spain team, sometimes captains know more than other people, but we need to put all this behind us. Um, so, I don't know, but we'll see how long this bad blood lingers. Certainly, um, Real Madrid tonight, they were very adamant that they had done nothing wrong. And I think one of the overlooked things in all this is that if Spain somehow bomb out at the World Cup, um, you know, he's not going to be a part of that. You know, he's not going to be tarnished if things don't go according to plan, if they, if they somehow come up short. So uh, I think he, he's, the, he's the real winner in all this. Well, Spain obviously had to bring someone in, and that's the former Spanish defender, now the Federation's director of football, Fernando Herrero, who uh, takes charge. He's only ever actually managed once. That was at Real Oviedo. That was the one season. So can he just come in and take on what Lopetegui has left behind, Matt? Bottom line is I don't know, but I mean it seems like Sergio Ramos basically runs the team, runs his club, injures players when he wants. Is there, is there nothing this man can't manipulate? He's I love this sort of image he's now got. He's he's kind of he's the new Suarez, isn't he? He's a football's mm. pantomime villain. Um, joking aside, it is a, it's an experienced squad, isn't it? You've got players who've been there, won everything, so they should be able to rally themselves. Um, I mean, what I find fascinating is whether the Barcelona players will, you know, take umbrage at Real Madrid, causing more trouble and those kind of wounds which um, Del Bosque did so well to heal could could maybe open up again. I don't know. You said Ramos runs the team and obviously is an important role, but Hierro kind of, kind of was Ramos before Ramos in terms of his role with the Spanish national team. Um, as a player, you know, 89 caps, Real Madrid legend. Um, some might even say Bolton Wanderers legend too. And... Weirdly, for a guy who has played most of his career as center back and as defensive midfielder, for a long time he was also the all-time leading goal scorer in the history of the Spanish national team with 29 goals. Um, but I think it's worth remembering that you know he had this role of technical director um, at the Spanish FA between 2007 and 2011, and that's obviously when they won the Euros with Aragonés and when they won the World Cup with with Vicente del Bosque. So he was a big part of that. He really has everybody's respect. He came back as technical director in between. You know, he did only have one year as a manager, but he was also uh, Carlo Ancelotti's assistant when they uh, when they went and, and they won the uh, the Champions League. So you know, he 
he he's a football guy. He knows it inside out. And and like I said, you know, he's been part of Lopetegui's uh, setup. And you know, when when he spoke today, he said, "Look, nothing's going to change. I mean, we're going to go on on the same path. It's Lopetegui's coaches, Lopetegui's uh, philosophy, Lopetegui's way of playing. You know, I'm certainly not going to go and and change that. I'm going to respect the work that that's uh, uh, that's got us to this point." Every manager says concentrate on the job in hand. Don't be distracted. Obviously, Lopetegui was distracted. And Portugal also seemed to have uh, some problems as, uh, as well, Gab. Four of their squad currently trying to terminate their sporting Lisbon contracts. What's what's the story going on there? Yeah, this is a, a remarkable story. I think one that you know, I'll have to be slightly careful what I say and try to stick to the facts. But um, sporting Lisbon... Late in the season, they suffered a little bit of a, a little bit of a collapse in the league. I think they ended up finishing third. This angered the supporters and it angered the president. And at one point, this group of supposedly fifty odd masked uh, sporting Lisbon, you know, supporters. But you know, I think the word "thugs" is probably more appropriate. Um, they just rocked up to the training ground one day, went inside, and decided just to beat everybody up. There's been all sorts of speculation that maybe it had been an inside job, somebody at the club who, who perhaps wanted to teach the players a lesson and, and motivate them in some, some twisted way. The point is, these players have said, enough is enough. Um, you know, the club has a duty of care. I think they've stopped short of saying that this was orchestrated by somebody at the club. But, you know, they certainly feel that, you know, that they have a legal argument to go and, uh, and rescind their contracts and, and leave the club on a free. Um, so... If this was something that was orchestrated, uh, it obviously backfired. Uh, indeed. One to uh, watch out for. Uh, Gab Marcotti, uh, enjoy what's going to be a fascinating match between Portugal and Spain. My pleasure. Take care. That's it for now. Many thanks to my guests today, Matt Hughes, Oliver Kay, Gab Marcotti and Henry Winter. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. For a limited time only, it's just a pound a month for your first three months. Simply search The Times sale for more information. We'll be back on Friday night after Spain take on Portugal and we'll also look back on Egypt versus Uruguay and Morocco versus Iran in the company of Matt Dickinson and Alison Rudd. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.